Conquest and Kindness, that's the title of this evening's consideration in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Who would have thought that chapters 8 and 9 would have so much rich information for us? And hopefully we'll see some of this. Uh, David's military victories are in chapter 8, as well as his saving for the temple to be built, which would be built by Solomon. He'd never get to see it while in this life. And then uh, just a review of his administration, his leaders, which is a, quite an accomplishment, considering uh, not very long ago he was running for his life from, from Saul. God made good on his promises. Uh, the ninth chapter is uh, very special. Let's see if we can get to these things. Uh, a little bit more review on chapter 8 or introduction. It summarizes the wars that occurred um, in, as David reigned in Israel over both the north and southern uh, tribes, northern and southern tribes. More wars would follow. They're not meant to be in chronological order, which makes it always tough to study. For example, we get to uh, chapter 10, and we find that the historian goes back and covers more of the battles that took place in chapter 8, and we're all grateful for that. First uh, Chronicles 18, parable, uh, parallel section, also covering these things. But he has in this eighth chapter for us victories at all points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. He secures his borders and stabilizes the region in, in doing so, showing that Yahweh gave David success. And just, uh, for example, in verse 6, and it will be repeated in verse 14, so Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. And uh, this is what we're getting in this eighth chapter. Now, verse 1, after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Mepheg Ammah from the hand of the Philistines. Well, the, after this was that incredible blessing that David received from God that mapped out for him his destiny in, into the millennial kingdom. And so having received God's blessings concerning his destiny, he appears to now have been inspired. And he attacks the enemy. He goes on the offensive. He takes the battles to them because he knows if he waits, they're going to bring it to him. So he gets them first. And he is, of course, very successful on this offensive spree that he goes, uh, engages the, the, the kingdom in. Uh, he was dwelling in peace. You'd say, well, why did he do this? Well, he needed peace of mind. Again, he knew the enemy was around him, surrounding him, and, and he was going to do something about it rather than waiting for them to come to him. And interestingly enough, the battle with Saul, that Saul and Jonathan led against the Philistines. They were defeated. They were killed. But they inflicted heavy enough damage on the Philistines to cause the Philistines to halt their aggression. That allowed David to become king in Hebron and the southern kingdom and then the northern kingdom. And they waited too long, licking their wounds. He regrouped. And so when David wrote... In first, the first chapter of Second Samuel, his ode to Saul and Jonathan, he says, The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Well, yeah, they were, they, they, again, they inflicted heavy damage on the Philippines. Philippines. <laughs> it's just testing you. 
the Philistines. And so uh, they goofed. They let David get strong. Brings to mind Romans 8, God causing all things to work together for the good. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So David, uh, he has, after this attack of the Philistines here in chapter 8, he is reducing and eliminating, actually, any significant threat from the Philistines who were serious uh, problems. Metheg Ama, that was the secret ingredient to his Middle Eastern eggnog recipe. And <laughs> it's probably Gath or some city by Gath. We get that from Second, uh, First Chronicles 18. But, you know, I like my interpretation better than... Uh, verse 2 now. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. With one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Well, David has distant family in Moab. We remember he took his parents there to hide them from Saul. This was a, a safe haven for his parents. Uh, the hostilities that evolved and involved the Moabites may have left out that particular clan. We're not told. But what this is about here, where it mentions him forcing them down to the ground, he measured them off with a line. It's, a, it's an obscure criteria of selection for sure. We don't know all the details, but ev evidently it was a military method of, of handling prisoners of war. And the, the vanquished opponent, what do you do if you defeat an army and you've got, you know, 20,000 men that survive? Well, if you leave them strong, they're just going to fight, meet them again on the battlefield. And uh, so there's some system here, whether it was random or by stature, it's not clear. But he, uh, he, he killed, he, he reduced their army significantly was not an uncommon practice in those days. In fact, we read Sunday about Christ returning at the end of the Great Tribulation in great glory. Well, what then, what then happens after that? Well, part of it is, is the judgment. Two people will be in a field, one will be taken, the other taken to judgment. While there's similarities to the rapture, that's not what that is. Uh, its first application is. Matthew 25, verse 32 and verse 46. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And these will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so the millennial reign, that thousand year or so reign of Christ, begins with believers. He purges earth, and then other people are born they have to then exercise free will and accept the authority of Christ or not. And in time, there will be those who will not accept his authority. And that is going to be the final rebellion, which Christ just deals with sort of a, a flick of the finger. And that's over with. And a new heavens and new earth is created. My point is we see our king exercising a similar uh, application of judgment as David is, at, uh, is applying here to the Moabite army that is vanquished, he says, okay, this is how we're going to say who's, who lives and who does not get to live. Uh, uh, if, if you consult commentaries, they'll say what I just said, just not as nicely as I did it. 
because they're not as humble as I am, and we know that this is a characteristic that you are blessed by. Anyway, <laughs> trivia. And I hope there's nobody listening online saying, boy, that guy is really full of himself. Well, I can't get anybody else in me. Uh, anyway, <laughs> a tribute. That, of course, makes the defeated weaker and potentially more bitter. And it makes the, the victor stronger and more possessive. Because he's not going to want to lose that money coming in. Pays for the war. Pays for future wars. That's significant to what's going on. Verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zorb, Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. So here's his conquest to the north. We will again get some of this in the 10th chapter. It is unclear of who was trying to recover their territory, whether it was Hadadezer and David acted or David went to recover something. Not an outstanding point. Verse 4, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. And so here David is saying, I'm going to break their ability to wage war. He hamstrings their horses, which... They can't pull chariots and be used as cavalry, but they can be used to breed other horses. Uh, he spares enough of them here to leave them with a national defense, uh, a, a national guard, uh, 100 chariots. Verse 5, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Uh, He's dealing severe blows to those around him. Uh, you, you just didn't mess with David. He, he's, going to make, he's making a name for himself. He writes the 60th Psalm based on this battle. And that is likely because it was a, a, a serious bit foreboding. These guys have all these chariots, this mechanized army at the time. And uh, he, he was probably so relieved about the victory that he was inspired to write a psalm. Earlier, he, or at some other point, he wrote Psalm 20, and in that psalm he says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. Well, that included developing techniques to neutralize chariots. Pick better battlefields would be one of them, where chariots could not roll well. Uh, we have to say that because the Bible never supports magic. Uh, any blessing we get, God involves us, and that, that getting us involved means work, and work means part of the curse by the sweat of the brow. The earth will yield its fruits, whether it's physical or spiritual. Uh, it is hard work. Uh, you younger believers understand that when you're young, laziness comes very easy to you because you've not yet had to pay your own mortgage and other things like that. Uh, when you start needing gas money, you might have more inspiration. Uh, but uh, don't fight laziness. It's not going to die a natural death. You, you've got to kill it for the rest of your life till it becomes uh, your habit to, you know, I just can't sit here and do nothing uh, until you've earned it. And the moms and dad, you know, you want to give a standing ovation at this point. Uh, so we'll keep going to verse 6. Uh 
One more thing about you younger Christians. Mom and dad probably say these things to you. I hope they do. And it's nice to hear your pastor say it. With the authority of God. (laughs) So, (laughs) amen. All right. Verse (laughs) 6. Then David put garrisons in Syria and Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute, so Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. Garrisons, that's an occupying force. You defeat the enemy, so you know what? We're going to keep an eye on you, and we're going to keep enough troops here to hold you down if you start an uprising until we can get more troops here. To finish you off. Well, that's what the Romans' 10th legion was in Israel. Uh, There it was a garrison of Rome. And Rome had them all over the world. This is brilliant of David. Had Israel done this in the days of Joshua, they would not have lost so many cities that they conquered. They they conquered Jabus and then they lost it. Because they moved on to other battles. Did not leave a garrison behind. You say you're being critical. Not being factual. Read Judges chapter 1. And you'll find out that... uh, They couldn't drive them back out because they came in, refortified themselves. Anyway, it is brilliant on David's part. I believe David is saying, you know, we have this mandate from God, this commandment to drive these people out. Well, I can't drive them all out, but I can set uh, the the, the standard and begin the pace for kings who come behind me to finish this process. And they never did. Had they continued with their garrisons, they would have eventually purged the land. Um, With garrisons comes your culture, and if you are obedient, you bring your God with you. Uh, And the pagans did it all the time. Rome had their temple up in their Antonia fortress in Israel, and so did other peoples. Anyway, Warren Wiersbe makes this comment. He says, quite frankly, it is much easier to win souls than to watch for souls. Amen. If you've ever evangelized and led someone to the Christ, you find, you know, when the Lord opens that door, it's really him. It's kind of easy when he's opening the door. But then what? There's a whole world of heresy out there for them to run off to. Ergo, discipleship. And it is not easy because if the person you lead to Christ or a new believer likes what they're getting, even though it's heresy, it's really a serious opponent. Because now you're trying to give them truth, and truth is not always pleasant. And, and uh, that's where you have to watch Ezekiel 3.17, son of man. Now he's talking to, he, he would refer to Ezekiel this way. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. And, of course, Ezekiel had a difficult ministry. He had the people who were in captivity who really didn't want to hear what he had to say. And he would go out of his way with these bizarre presentations of the word Ezekiel would. He's like, this guy's borderline weirdo. Uh, But he was being dramatic because that's what he felt it took. And I side with Ezekiel as I... Believers do. Anyway, being the nature of the sinful flesh to disobey and go backwards from the spirit, uh, thus a spiritual garrison needs to be put in place. Paul, writing, uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders, said, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. 
Now, coming from Paul to these servants who he, whom he invested in, you know that his voice echoed in their head with, in the future as they went on about serving God. They could hear Paul say, Therefore, watch, because you remember that I warned you night and day with tears. It was emotional. It was, he knew what was coming. And so what we're talking about here is then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus because he knew that just because he conquered the territory did not guarantee it would remain uh, uh, subject to him. And we can draw many spiritual applications from that. Uh, Christianity is very hard work, even in the spirit. Uh, Verse it's, it's easier in the spirit, of course, but it is uh, otherwise prayer. Everybody would be what we call prayer warriors, and prayer is hard work. Uh, the Syrians, it says here in verse 7, became David's servants and brought tribute. So Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. So it paid off to put these garrisons there to watch the, what you had uh, gained in victory. Uh, he made his enemies work for him, is what he's doing, uh, that it, it made perfect sense. Joshua, when he was deceived, he made those who deceived him work for Israel too. Let them live, the Gibeonites, uh, Gideonites, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation. Huh. Uh, so that was a wise move on Joshua's part. And David is doing the same thing. And this factors in to what's coming. Because I mentioned in the introduction that David is going to conquer his enemies. And then he's going to use what he gains from these conquests to ready Solomon to give him the resources to build the temple. So the house of God was built on the spoils of war, the conquest of David. Verse 7, and David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Well, it's a basic fact under the curse. To the victor go the spoils. You know, we have those, you know, Ben and Jerry goofballs running around saying, well, we don't like Israel. They stole the land from the Palestinians. There are no Palestinians. They're Arabs. They're mostly Jordanian Arabs. They are not Philistines. Uh, Hadrian, the Roman emperor, renamed Israel Palestine after it's a Latin version of Philistines to stick it to the Jews. And so the devil has had his, and and the people at the top of the pyramid know this, but it it doesn't work unless they get the people at the bottom of the pyramid to drink the Kool-Aid and to believe whatever it is they're feeding them. And what they're feeding them is that Israel was, the land of Israel was stolen by the Jews from these poor people that are there now. And that is a full-blown lie. Israel conquered that land. It was a judgment of God. But by that same, then, uh, you know, then let's give everything west of the Mississippi back to the French who stole it from the Indians. I mean, let's just keep, <laughs> am I going on a rant? <laughs> anyway, it's all a bunch of nonsense. We know these are lies, but you need to understand this and stand up to people in the workplace. No, there are no Palestinians. It's a lie. They are Jordanian Arabs mostly, and they are Muslims mostly, and they are political pawns, and there's nobody getting Israel out of that land anyway. So there, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, uh, 
He's take, so he takes the shields because the victor, he, he conquered them. And these are going to be, they were decorative and uh, for special occasions. They certainly weren't for combat. I mean, gold is not a very strong metal. It's, very, it's a heavy metal, uh, but uh, not the musical type. Uh, and it's, uh, you wouldn't waste gold on the battlefield like that. Apparently, Solomon liked this and enhanced it. Uh, the, the, the idea of these decorative shields, Second Chronicles 12. Uh, well, before I get to 12. So Solomon, he makes even better gold shields and puts them in the temple. But his fool of a son, Rehoboam. These sons, they just could not, you know, walk in the steps of their father. Had Rehoboam been like more like Solomon and David, he, it would have been so much better. But he was such a noodle head. That he lost the kingdom and the shields. The Egyptian king Shishak comes and he steals these golden shields. Second Chronicles 12 verse 10. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place. And committed them to the hands of cap- the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Fine. You take my gold shields, I'll make inferior ones to replace them. It's kind of a monument to his folly. And not, well, that was pretty ingenious of him. No, it was not. He should have never lost the gold ones. God would have been with him. And so we read these lessons. We're supposed to walk away saying, okay, I'm not supposed to be like like Rehoboam. Anyway, uh, David was storing up these things, again, for the building, transforming the nation or the kingdom of Israel into the most powerful kingdom in that region. And everybody would think twice before coming against David. Now, Jerusalem is mentioned here. It is the most mentioned city in the Bible. And uh, the second place is uh, Mechanicsville, Virginia. It's Babylon, not Mechanicsville. Uh, uh, So Jerusalem, number one, Babylon. And that, to me, is significant by itself because it speaks of this war of the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, fallen men. Verse 8, also from Beta and from Beratai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. Now we fast forward to First Chronicles 29. Now for the house of my God, David speaking, I have prepared with all my might. Now First Chronicles 18.8, David brought a large amount of bronze, which with which Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars, and the articles of bronze. And so David was financing the temple through his conquest. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar will come along and they will cut up all this bronze and haul it back to Babylon in time. Verse 8, When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, verse 10, then Toai sent Joram, his son to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him for Hadadezer had been at war with Toai and Joram Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. So David is continuing uh, to be enriched. Toai figured it out. He says, listen, it's better to be a vassal king of David than a dead king because Hadadezer. And he was delighted. He, he was just wise. And his kingdom would be better off for this. We already saw 
that David was a gracious king by leaving them chariots. He could have just stripped them like everybody else did and left them defenseless. But he, he was wise, and, and, and uh, we're seeing this come out in this section. Uh, verse 11, King David also dedicated these to Yahweh along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. Verse 12, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Um, let's go First Kings chapter 7, find out what happened. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of Yahweh was finished, and Solomon brought in all the things which his father David had dedicated. Very exciting. Uh, just David, just such, just a magnificent character. Verse 13, And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. Verse 14, He also put garrisons in Edom, throughout all Edom. He put garrisons and all <clears throat> the Edomites became David's servants. And uh, Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. When David puts these garrisons, as he's putting them all over, this is now to the south of Israel, uh, how do you pay for the troops, feed them, you, you know, rotate them out? You know, your duty stations is eat them. Oh, great. Uh, well, the tribute that these kings were paying and some of these spoils would, would certainly do that. This, verses 13 and 14 about Edom, well, verse 14, not 13, is an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the Old Testament. So when the Jews were heading towards the promised land and in the wilderness, Balak the king hired uh, Balaam, the prophet who became a backslidden prophet, to curse the Jews. And he could not do it. Every time he spoke to curse them, he ended up blessing them. Well, one of the blessings in Numbers twenty four eighteen, he says... <clears throat> And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Well, David is doing just that. He, that's a fulfilled prophecy. So when we come to the New Testament, we talk about prophecy future. We also recognize that there have been many prophecies already fulfilled. I mean, the book of Daniel, he just laid out history in an outline for Alexander the Great and the uh, the Ptolemies, and uh, then the Roman Empire, uh, all the way up to Antichrist. Other kings, beginning with Solomon, will begin unraveling David's conquest. He was on to something. Everything would have been different. And uh, they, they did not catch the vision. They were not... I don't want to simplify it like it was easy, but we have no indication that they had the same zest for Israel's territory that David did. So speaking of Israel's territory, verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. The region Yahweh had promised to Abraham is now under David's control. For the first time, the Jews have this swath of control from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. Genesis 15, verse 18. On the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I, give, I have given this land, 
from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Now, that's not the Nile, more than likely, not the Nile River that uh, he... There are other rivers in Egypt. Uh, we, they just, you know, become eclipsed by the Nile. So, again, making it easy for the future kings, but they unraveled it instead of continuing it. I mean, how often do we read about the garrisons after David? Uh, they, they lost it. So, um, verse 16 Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Well, we know about Joab. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Now, this is not the same Jehoshaphat that becomes king. Uh, This is a a historian, a secretary, uh, sort of in the state. Uh, He kept the records. The scribes would copy the records. When you needed to to find out what happened and retrieve the minutes of the (laughs) palace, You'd go to the recorder, and the scribes would be able to give you a copy. He, his career extends into the days of Solomon. Uh, I guess that's... Oh, I want to add this. The word secretary in our language is an interesting word. It means the secret holder. Uh, so you have, you know, on a, a, a board would have a secretary, a church secretary or a corporate secretary, and they are supposed to hold, they are privy to information that is not to be shared. Uh, and they are trustworthy, and that's the big point. They are trustworthy. It's not a demeaning title uh, at all. It's actually an honorable title. title. Uh, verse 17 Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests, and Shereah was the scribe. And so the recorder is mentioned, and Jehoshaphat, and Shereah is the scribe. But here the priest, uh, Zadok, and Abiathar, they fled Saul, and they got up with David. When David's son, Absalom, decides to turn on David, which is just, you know, utter sinful. Anyway, we'll get to Absalom when we get to him. When he turns on David, only Zadok, the priest of these two, uh, well, both of them, both of them remain faithful to David, pardon me, when Absalom attempts to overthrow the throne. However, when David is old and near death, Adonijah, another of David's son, an older stepbrother of Solomon, decides he's going to make himself the king. And he gets Joab to come on his side. And also Abiathar, this Abiathar here, who had been with David in the wilderness, had been with David, but he wasn't honoring David's choice to make Solomon king. He knew about the promises of of, uh, uh, God through Nathan the prophet to the king, and yet he still sides with uh, Adonijah. And, of course, David gets wind of the plot, and uh, they, they, they suppress it. They anoint Nathan and Zadok, the priest, anoint Solomon king, and Abiathar is deposed. Zadok becomes high priest. And you probably, I lost you with Zadok, Abiathar, and Anijah. So, my point is, of these two priests, Zadok remains true to David, loyal to David to the end, and... Uh, um, Abiathar does not ultimately remain true, even though he was at some point. Verse 18, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. 
Benaniah here, he, we're going to get him into the days of Solomon. He was a noble character. He is presently the commander of David's bodyguard. The bodyguards in the king's palace were often mercenaries, foreign troops, because they didn't have a political investment. They had a financial investment. As long as they got paid, they were on the side of the guy writing the checks. Whereas if you had your own people, there was a threat of them you know, not liking you and the intrigue that goes with that. And that was the thinking behind using mercenaries to guard you in the palace. Um, <clears throat> eventually, Benaniah, though, he is not a foreigner. He is a Jew. He will be used to slay Joab. And then he will take Joab's position as the chief military commander over Israel. What is nice about this comment at the end of verse 18 is David did have competent sons, evidently, who were ministers uh, over various offices in the land. Well, now we come to the ninth chapter, and we meet two new characters, Ziba and Mephibosheth. Ziba was a creep. Let's just get that right out. And Mephibosheth was, um, he actually was a sweetheart. And uh, he was a man, and I mean in a feminine way, just as, a, as people go. He was, there's nothing to dislike about him, um, no, at least not in print. I'm sure if you lived with him like you live with anybody else, you know, I, I just hate the way you do that. I just blinked. Yeah, but you do it too many times. So I don't know. That's you're just all messed up that way. Be patient with one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Um, <clears throat> anyway, verse 9. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David's love for Jonathan, you know, that, that never left. He stabilized the kingdom. We don't know exactly when this is taking place. You know, it reads as though it, you know, he beat Hadadizar and now he's doing We don't, not exactly. And it's not important. What is important is what is happening uh, his long dear friend who was killed on the battlefield, Jonathan, David had a covenant with him to look out for his descendants and not slaughter them as was the custom of royalty in those days. And so he doesn't forget his promise because it's signed in love. That is why the covenant was not built simply on, in, in, written in ink and a handshake. They loved. They had this great love for each other. And this whole ninth chapter is going to be grace on display. You know, you can attend a church and the pastor can say such a little thing, but you're passionate about that little thing. And you're willing to just, you know, forsake all the good things for that little thing. Uh, that's not grace. That's being petty. And it could be the other way around, too. You know, a pastor can, you know, someone gives him, makes a little comment that is not in his favor. Well, no, he would be right if he didn't like that person. That, I'm sorry, I take that back. <laughs> anyway, we have to guard that with each other on, in every relationship that, that exists. We have to be on guard that we do not become petty. And that means you're going to have to corral your feelings. Anyhow, uh, it is a wonderful thing to receive the king's grace. But does it ever flow out of you? Or are you just a dead end? Now, nowadays, you know, they, they put fancy French words on dead ends, don't they? It's a cul-de-sac. No, it's a dead end because you can't get out of it. It's dead. You'd have to turn around. You just have to make a three-point turn. You could just make a circular turn, but it's still a dead end. 
And if you live on a cul-de-sac, I mean no offense, but let's just understand what we're dealing with. Uh, <laughs> where I came from, there was just dead ends. You didn't name anything in cul-de-sac. They would call you a phony. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm sorry about that a little bit. Gives you a chance to show me some grace. Uh, do we have it flowing through us? Or are we like the Dead Sea? Was anything poured into us? That, we, you know, that was Absalom. Here's dad poured, mom poured things into him, and he just sucked it in. It was all about him. He's so in love with himself and his long, luxurious hair that we'll get to that he turns on his parents. What a wolf. And uh, there's no grace ever coming from Absalom. So we are very much paying attention because we know this is a big deal with Jesus Christ. Grace is a very big deal with him. And if you don't show it, maybe you don't have him. That's how big a deal it is. Uh, there is the common kindness that people can show, and then there is uncommon grace. Uh, there is valor, and as Nimitz said of the those in the Pacific War, uh, there is uncommon valor, high virtue. And we are supposed to have this uncommon grace, which is a high virtue. We know how to turn the other cheek and take the hit. Uh, so, if men, said one old, I think it was William Newell said this, a commentator, pastor from many years ago. If men are not won by grace, they will never be won. Well, isn't that true? I mean, there are Bible teachers that are pastors in the pulpit, and you listen to them, and everything they're saying is pretty much true. It's accurate. It's just no love. It's no love. Judgment. Always somebody is up to something. And you, you just, you know, pray for those kind of men. Fortunately, uh, uh, prayer does do things. It just doesn't do it according to our timetable. Romans 2, verse 4. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. I fragmented the verse because that clause in the verse stands all by itself. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repent. Otherwise, why repent? If God was mean and there was no way to be forgiven, why should I repent? But He does forgive and He does rebuild. And it is that goodness that we find so wonderful and attractive. Why we break down and we weep over our sins. Uh, why did Peter weep when he denied the Lord? Because he knew the goodness of God. And the failure of the flesh. Which has to have its garrisons. And uh, verse 2. There was a servant from the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when... They had called him to David. The king said to him, Are you Zeba? And he said, At your service. And then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Zeba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. What condition allowed Mephibosheth into the fellowship of the king. Because he's going to end up in the fellowship with the king. What, what condition allowed it? Because he has nothing to offer. Grace. The grace of the king. Actually, in Mephibosheth's case, the grace of the king voided execution. He is a descendant of Saul. He can stir up trouble and make a claim to the throne. He, by other king's standards, 
should be executed to eliminate any idea of using him to overthrow the throne of David. It is grace, the grace of the king that voids out execution. That's me. That's you. That's what, I mean, what voids out our execution as guilty sinners before a holy God? It is grace. As I mentioned, he had nothing to offer the king. He's an invalid as people. He could not survive on his own. In this economy, he, there was no way he could survive on his own. And we're going to hopefully open a lot of this up. According to the customs and the demands, uh, the, the kings would eliminate them. We're going to see this in Athaliah. She was a witch in the northern kingdom who forced herself on the people. She becomes queen for a while. Second Chronicles 22. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Uh, that is an indication that this was how they did it back then. If you were a threat, if you had a claim to the throne, many of them would wipe out that, purge that line. Not always, but it was not uncommon and would not have even been frowned upon. People would have understood. They're protecting the throne. Who's going to stop them? It says here, Ziba tells David, Jonathan, who is lame in his feet, uh, why this detail right now? I think it's mean-spirited. I don't think it's, it has nothing to do. He's, he, are there any descendants of Saul? Mephibosheth. Why does he have to tell him he's lame in his feet? Why doesn't he also tell him how long his fingernails are? Which at some point is going to be part of the story, not this evening, later on. Anyhow, here is uh, Jonathan's son, lame in his feet, a type of mankind with a broken walk. Well, you know what that means. We all try to walk the right way before God, but our walk is broken at times. He is not able to go to war. He is unfit to receive anointings according to the laws, Leviticus 21. No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. Well, that would spill over into other areas of anointing. Uh, so he was at a great disadvantage. He was handicapped, we would say, and very mindful of it. How was he treated by people? Because he was this way since he was a child. You know, we'll, we'll cover that in a minute. Verse 4. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machur, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. David is getting things done. I've got this covenant with Jonathan, and I'm going to get it done. And he is there. Where is he? Lodibar means pastureless, barren. Mephibosheth is a handicap who is wasting away. Even though he was once royalty, a prince. Lodibar, he lives in a land barren. That is the meaning of that place. And uh, knowing the whole story of this man, is it not striking to know that he is unable to walk well? That he is in a place where he cannot produce anything? It is part of the story. Verse 9, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Mechur, and the son of Amiel, 
from Lodibar. So David acts upon his good intention. It's very easy to say to Jonathan, I, you, you know what, I'm going to do this. I want to do this for you. And then never do it. It happens too often. People make these, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And they never deliver. And so the Bible is very much vocal about, be careful about the promises you make. Uh, there are some folks, if they help you do something, they think you now owe them. You know, you're, you're driving along, you get a flat tire, and your neighbor pulls up, and he helps you with the tire, and, and then they drives off, drives off, and then your neighbor comes knocking on your door a few days later. Hey, I'm painting my house. Come help. Remember I helped you fix your tire? Well, I ain't going to help you paint your house. Um, nope. There, there's some people think they do something for you. There's a string attached to it. And that's not grace. Grace does not expect something in return. Read the 13th chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians, you know, about love. How it does not uh, parade itself. It does not expect these things. It's different if you enter into a contract. I'll fix your tire. The mob does that, do they not? The mob does a favor for you, then you're on there. You're now on the roll. Uh, they'll show up, hey, I need a favor, and it's going to be a crime. Verse 6. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. And there he is, before the king, broken from his youth. Sound familiar? That's us. Um, he's broken before everybody he stood before, really, but he's standing before the king. And in type, of course, David in type is the Lord, the, the king, and we are Mephibosheth. You cannot dismiss the similarities. The parallels are clear once you lock in on them. And he, he went through life this way, defective. He was defective because of somebody else, just like us. Adam and Eve made us defective. We had no say-so in this. Second Samuel chapter 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. He's a little tight, depending on people to care for him, and he ends up like this, broken. He has no entitlement, but he doesn't seem to have any bitterness either. He's displaced as a prince. He understands the power structure. The way he talks to David, he is totally submitted. He doesn't have this sense, well, I'm entitled to this. My dad was king before you that would have been dumb. And there were some who might have even tried such a thing. But here he is, a handicap before the king. And he doesn't yet know that this king is loving on him and going to look out for him. It is a beautiful illustration of the sinner made helpless and worthless before a king who can do something for him. Again, someone else cost him his health but it made him a candidate for the king's grace. That's us. Tragedy didn't put him beyond the king's reach. Born into the wrong kingdom, under Saul, unable to walk, unprofitable, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, 
Paul says to the church at Colossae that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Two things that stand out in significance there to that verse in Mephibosheth is walking and being fruitful. And he had come from a barrenless place where he was wasting away because he could not walk. And still the king sought him. First John chapter 4, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. David initiated this. Christ initiates it with us. We're supposed to initiate it with unbelievers. And then we are supposed to set a garrison with fellow believers. Because fellow believers don't always walk well. They demand grace. Just like if you have a pet, it demands care. John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. And that's what we're seeing acted out before us. David is the one that drew Mephibosheth to him, and he is going to be the one that cares for him. <clears throat> uh, what would have happened if, if, if Mephibosheth did not accept the invitation? He'd not be at the king's table. What would happen if we give the invitation to come to Christ and they don't accept it? They're not going to be at that banquet in heaven. And when we talk about the sitting at the table in those days, they weren't furniture tables as we have. They pretty much sat on pillows and rugs and floors. And, uh, but it's still referred to as the table because of what is placed before them. In verse 7, So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat at my table continually. David tells him, don't fear, because he's afraid he's going to get killed, executed, because of who he belongs to. And that is the house of Saul. And David is assuring him, I'm going to show you kindness, and I'm going to restore to you. Of course, you know, one of the things we think about is what the locusts have eaten, I will restore to you. Well, God doesn't have to do that in this lifetime to fulfill that promise. He can wait. If you live to be... 90 and not 100, you get to heaven and have restoration. If you live to be 100 instead of 110, you get to be, it's not a time thing with God. The king's salvation, it is not from poverty. He can give these things. Had he left them as he found him, he'd still be barren, and so would we. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. This is the kind of stuff we're supposed to read and come away with hope from. We're supposed to say, Lord, I'm having trouble with my walk. And the king says, I invite you to sit at my table nonetheless. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these... Things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages will come. Okay, when Paul writes these two letters to the Romans and the Corinthians, who is he talking to mostly? Gentiles. He is taking the Old Testament characters, and he is saying, this belongs to you just as much. You have been grafted in. You are every bit a part of the family of God. This wasn't some, well, you're not a descendant of Abraham. Well, Paul cleared that up. What makes you a descendant of Abraham is not physical DNA. It's spiritual DNA. It's got to be faith. You can be a Jew according to the flesh and not a child of Abraham, a child of faith in that sense. In verse 8, 
Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Well, a dead dog is no use to a king. And Mephibosheth knows this. It's his humility. We don't, again, read a negative word about him. We do read about someone saying negative things about him. And, uh, uh, but the king did not call him a dog. Audience with God will never leave us self-impressed. You will not get up from your knees and say, you know what? I am pretty good. Did you hear that prayer? The sentence structure? The verb-noun agreement? I mean, it's so self-impressed. Of course not. Well, we don't have time to go through all of them, but I can mention them. Job says, I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in the dust and ashes compared to God. I, man, I am hated. I am that. The contrast is that different. Then is Isaiah, in the year that he saw King Uzziah, in the year King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on the throne. Train of his robe, fill the temple. Then what it goes on in the story, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He did not say, well, I'm Isaiah, the prophet. I'm a prophet in the palace. Then is my favorite as the other two are also. When Simon Peter saw it, the miracle of the Lord, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He saw what Jesus could do, and he knew that I am not worthy of this. And so if we remain self-impressed afterwards, after an audience with God, maybe we really haven't met ourselves, O God. Verse 9. And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to his house. Verse 10. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall walk, pardon me, shall work the land for him. We pause there because he can't do it himself. We continue. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. What? How did he get? He was a servant of Saul. How did he get to have all these sons, which means he has all these wives, and all these servants himself? Evidently, he did well after Saul's death. He somehow capitalized on that. And uh, I don't think David missed it either. But David, I've got, got to say, when we get deeper into this in latter chapters, David's going to mess this up. He's going to drop the ball on this. He do, he's going to lack discernment when it comes to Ziba and his relationship with Mephibosheth. And we'll, we'll cover that later. Uh, you could write it off and say, well, he had so many other things going on that uh, he didn't apply himself. But it still is going to be... Uh, a disappointing outcome. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. For as Meshibbeth said, as for Meshibbeth, okay, let's try that one more time. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Well, just keep in mind, Ziba is one of the creeps of the Bible. He is a self-serving, opportunistic liar. 
And uh, when we're done with him, you won't have to take my word for it if you're not familiar with him. You'll see it. Mephibosheth, verse 12, had a young son whose name was Micah. It's a variant of Micah. <laughs> and all who dwelt in the house of Zebur were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So here's the picture of Mephibosheth dining at the table of David with his lameness hidden. Because as they sprawl out on the floor, everybody looks alike. You can't tell. They're not standing up. If it were a wooden table like we have today or some other furniture, piece of furniture, you, his lameness would be hidden by the table at the royal banquet. When the Holy Spirit repeats something in a short period of time, four times, as he is doing here, it is obvious that he intends to grip our hearts with an important truth. Four times he mentions sitting at the table. Let's go back and see where they are. This might take a little time. It won't because I am a professional. Don't try this at home. Verse 4, so the... Uh, no, that's not it. I'm giving you an example of what you would look like if you tried it at home. Verse 7. You shall eat bread at my table continually. And then it comes up again in verse 11. He shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And then again in verse 14, he shall, um, for he ate continually at the king's table. Now, I know I missed one, and uh, it comes before verse 7. Uh, well, it would be a homework assignment to see if, if you can get it done. We'll, we'll move on because we're almost out of time. Whew. <laughs> it's in there four times. And uh, I know someone's itching to yell it out. Just, just let me suffer, Okay. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I mentioned that you can hear a sermon, and maybe I've done it myself, but not likely. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. You can, you can hear a sermon, and it's all true. The points of judgments are true, but there's just no grace. And uh, that eventually we, we discover as those who sit in the pew that we want grace too. We want love. We want to hear it come from the pulpit. We don't want just hard facts from the Bible. We want to see the love in the characters, in the record that has been given to us. It continues in John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How can you really administer the truth without grace? Because within that truth is grace. In fact, it doesn't work if all we have is truth and uh, we, it becomes academic and not spiritual. So we cannot escape the matching attributes of our King Jesus and his grace. Just to review, a type of mankind in verse 3, in that he was, could not walk, broken from his youth, as in chapter 4, giving us the story of when he was dropped or fell. 
verse 3, again, his walk was not something that was pleasing. Again, chapter 4, helpless because of someone else. Verse 4 of this chapter, he lived in a barren land, not close to the king. Uh, Verse 3 again, he was not beyond grace. Think of that. He had nothing to offer. But grace reached him nonetheless. Verse 4, he was made eligible for grace by the king. Second Chronicles 22, where we mention Athaliah, that she murdered anyone that might have claimed to the throne. And so what we have here is grace voided out execution, which is the same for us. Though your sins are red as scarlet, I will wash them. I'm, I'm adding, commentating uh, as I'm quoting the verse. Though your sins are red as scarlet, I will wash them, and you will be white as snow. Uh, purposefully paraphrasing that. Uh, chapter, uh, verse 5 of this chapter, grace cancels separation. Same with God. I do wrong before God. He is so ready to take me back. God is not like, you know what, you messed up, and I'm so sick and tired of that. I've got nothing more to say to you. That is never Jesus Christ. Because we are predestined in Christ. He already knew when he saved us that we'd be goofballs later on at the same time. It is called recurrent cleansing. It is the grace of God. Otherwise, if grace comes through the law, if if righteousness comes through the law, then what is grace? That's what Paul was telling the Ephesians. By grace you are saved, not as yourself. You kind of hesitate to want to say this to some folks because they're going to abuse it. But the righteous won't abuse it. The righteous will embrace it and get back up and get back into the fight. Uh, Verse 17, grace because of another. Grace, uh, verse 11, grace created fellowship at the king's table in spite of his lameness. Grace again and at the king's table forever. So the four times we read about him at the king's table, verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 13. We never find him angry. We never find him bitter. Even though he was wronged by life, a tragic life, and he never looks for material possessions. And the last thing to say about Mephibosheth for this evening's consideration is he will die without notice. When he dies, the Bible won't say it. It doesn't have to say it because grace was all over his life. I think it's a beautiful story, this man. We'll see him again. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you for the lessons tonight. And now uh, may you energize us through your Holy Spirit that we could reflect the character of Christ and uh, do something very meaningful with the grace we receive. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.